You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I'm your host, Miles Lassiter, founder and investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired, to be a founder, or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Matt Spatel is the co-founder and CEO of Copilot, a Pittsburgh-based remote personal training startup. With an engineering background from Carnegie Mellon University, Matt specializes in designing and building innovative consumer products. Since its founding in 2019, Copilot has raised $10 million, grown to 50 full-time employees, and impacted thousands of lives across the globe. I am a happy user and an investor. During this episode, we cover the evolution of the company vision, how to learn about new disciplines as a founder, how Matt always wanted to build robots and how he ended up working on Copilot, building a team from five to over 50 in one year, and how to successfully fundraise. I think you'll enjoy this, so please stay tuned. Welcome to Startups for Good, Matt. Thanks for so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Miles. Super excited. Yeah. So tell us how you got started with Copilot. Yeah, happy to. I mean, it's probably not the story most people expect when they see, see Copilot today. So my co-founder, Gabe Madonna, is actually one of my childhood best friends. We go all the way back to, to high school, where I was probably the, the scrawniest nerdiest software developer guy you could imagine building my own video games. And, you know, Gabe comes into my life and, and brings me into the gym for the first time and introduces me to this whole world of fitness. And so it was very fitting that then four or five years after that fateful meeting back in high school, we would get together again to just go and start experimenting with ideas that were near and dear to our heart in our, in our own day-to-day -day sort of gym and fitness habits. And so specifically, we were really intrigued by this concept of using wearable data, wearable motion data, you know, accelerometers and gyroscopes to be able to detect what people were actually doing when they are exercising purely for the sake of just being able to record it automatically and sort of write it down, just like you see people using notebooks in the gym today. And so that was the initial kernel of an idea, just tracking what people could do using this data. Uh, that kicked it all off and, and sort of set us down the path that would eventually become the co-pilot that we know today. And when did you realize it was a larger mission than tracking reps? Yeah, great question. So it was, it was about, I want to say a year into it. At this time, me and Gabe were just sort of officially finishing up our educations. At, I, I went to Carnegie Mellon, Gabe went to MIT. And as we were sort of that summer after we were finishing the degrees, we were doing a lot of user experimentation, just getting it onto people's hands, having people having, you know, gym bros, for lack of better words, just like me and Gabe sort of playing around with this technology. And what we saw was, you know, it was cool that it was it was tracking these things and spitting out these numbers and answers, but it wasn't like providing a, a, an insanely compelling value to those people. It was just a nice to have thing. It wasn't a need to have thing. And so that really pushed us to explore, you know, what could be, what is the need to have in this space? And what we saw was not with the, the gym enthusiasts, sort of bodybuilding, powerlifting, tryhard group, 
it was actually in the the more so more so general population beginner population where we saw this complete lack of products that could actually enforce accountability and motivation and sort of human connection with an actual uh, user and a client and actually get them to build that exercise habit in the first place. And so that led us to the idea and the hypothesis that, well, if we take a human being, an actual personal trainer in this case, and, and empower them with this unique data that we have access to, maybe we can be one of the first products ever created to, to solve this accountability and motivation problem rather than just the tracking what you do or, or spitting out a, a workout to do problem. And how do you see the mission today? That's a great question. It's definitely taken another step from there <laughs> where, you know, starting just trying to create this sort of baseline motivation, it's really, really grown from that to be all about being this, this company that represents, you know, being down to earth, making fitness accessible, bringing that human empathy into fitness and the long-term, you know, mission of our company today is to arm every person in the world with a team of experts in technology that helps them achieve fitness progress through day-by-day -day action. And so it's meant to be very much about habit building, accountability, just taking those first few steps. And I always say, you know, it's gone from being a company that was about optimizing your deadlift and your bench press to being a company that could just be about going on that 10 minute walk today and, you know, feeling good about that. And, you know, maybe being able to go up the stairs for the first time without feeling out of breath or having your knees hurt or, you know, these small wins in our life that many, many people uh, in the United States, especially can relate to uh, as we sort of fight this, both the obesity epidemic, but also just a general lack of <laughs> fitness, accountability and motivation in the general population. Yeah, we're learning more and more about exercise being connected with health, cognitive ability, mood, et cetera, so many benefits, yet we do struggle to build the habit or to keep motivation. So many Americans don't exercise enough. Yeah, hundred percent. And like the, the interesting thing is, you know, obviously I, I watch the, the, the fitness health tech space very closely and, you know, 99 out of a hundred concepts and ideas I see are all really focused on you know, what, what I would sort of call enrichment for the people who already have a habit where, you know, take, you know, one that everyone's talking about nowadays, right? Take a product like Peloton. It's a great product, a great experience, extremely engaging, extremely interactive, but fundamentally that experience is only really enabled once you make that decision to get on the bike in the first place and do that workout. Our product, I always say, sort of sits a level above that where, you have this huge population of people who never would even get on that bike in the first place. And it takes something very special. I would argue something innately human to actually motivate that person to get on that bike or go on that uh, walk or that run or go to the gym or whatever it may be for that individual. And how does the human element come in? Yeah. I mean, it's embodied in, like I said, a personal trainer today in that you, I mean, quite literally when you sign up for Copilot, you get paired with one of these awesome coaches that we have full-time on our staff. And you kick off that relationship with a face-to-face -face onboarding call where you get to learn all about them, of course, but you know, more importantly, they get to learn all about you and the, the barriers that you face when it comes to exercise and what things you've tried before and you know, that shoulder injury that you've had since high school and you know, all those individual things that make fitness all about you and individual to you. And then on an ongoing basis, that coach is going to be creating 
personalized workout programming, personalized sort of structuring of activity through your week, and in some cases, personalized nutrition advice. And then when you're actually doing those activities through the week, your coach is in essentially constant contact with you via asynchronous text messaging, video messaging to give you guidance on how you're doing with those activities, any adjustments that might need to be made, you know, what is going to be made harder, or easier for the next week, et cetera. And of course, at any time, if a client feels like they do need another sort of like face-to-face check-in reset type call, that can be scheduled at any time as well. So we see our clients getting on calls with their coaches about every six weeks uh, during this experience. And then communicating on almost an every single day basis, you know, four messages back and forth as they're discussing workouts and general activity in their life. Part of what excites me about as I looked at originally as an investor and then became a user, the price point is low enough that it's accessible and you get a real person for the motivation, for the personalization, but the tech takes over when you're working out so that that person can help other people and you don't have to pay for all of their time. I think it's a great combination of robot or software plus person. Uh, yeah. and, a, and I think an example of the type of product we're going to see in the future more and more where tech, AI, whatever you want to call it is going to be combined with a real person so the person can excel at what they do. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I and obviously I can't take credit for inventing that modality, but I, I have a distinct memory where as we were in that you know, tumultuous phase of our development where we were trying to figure out, is it software? Is it only humans? Is it some combination? How do we mix these things together? What's the price point? How do we scale? You know, all these, all the classic fundamental uh, pre-seed questions we were asking. Uh, one of our very first angel investors, Jonathan Gray, I remember he sent me this you know, random article, probably you know, TechCrunch article, whatever. It was talking about exactly that phenomenon of this new age of products that's really kicking butt of the previous pure software generation of products is this hybrid between computers are doing the automated tasks, a lot of the synchronous tasks to keep users just moving through these flows and doing things and guided, but then the sort of human level empathy, accountability, motivation, onboarding in a lot of cases, like we see in a product like Superhuman, right, is actually completely done by that human side. And, and this synergy between those things ends up being and a great example of, you know, the, the output is, is greater than the sum of the parts. It's really exciting to see that come to life in fitness and how that's evolved for us from the very beginning. So in your founder journey, as you were wandering in that wilderness, you said the pre-seed, what was it that helped you find your way through? Oh man, great question. Like I, uh, it was really just a, a, a mindset of, of constantly throwing out random little sketchy tests until we saw, you know, signals one way or the other, whether no one cared or somebody cared uh, more than they did before to slowly sort of like feel our way against the walls in that darkness, if you will, and to find where we were actually going. And so like, you know, a, a real example of this is, you know, for a while before we stumbled upon trying the humans for the first time, we were just doing pure uh, software. We were doing apps. We, were, we, were, we would build little automated workout players and, and systems and give these to people in gyms and we would watch them use it, interact with it. And, and then you know, one day when we decided to uh, try the, the training aspect, the human aspect, me and Gabe actually just, uh, we, we are not certified personal trainers, <laughs> have it be known, but we decided to start 
training some of these people under completely fake identities, pretending to be coaches on our platform. And even us being probably terrible coaches under fake identities, we saw this crazy shift almost immediately in just the perceived value of the product and the experience and how people were talking about it and engaging with it. You know, that was an example of this just totally sketchy, like not scalable at all thing we did to validate that idea before then we would say, okay, well, there's promise here. Like, let's go hire, you know, our first coach, let's build an actual system to allow them to communicate, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, that, that's just one example of probably a dozen or more like of these pivotal realizations of, of what we're really serving. Like another great example was we were very, very stuck up on this target customer of like, the more experienced person who needs the guidance and the, and the motivation of a trainer to take it to the next level. And we were just so like sort of tunnel visioned on this customer because quite frankly, that's who me and Gabe were. Uh, and so we were, we were struggling to see past our own needs and see the needs of the greater market. And it was only when we just had a complete shot in the dark YouTube video uh, sponsorship that acquired you know, 500 customers overnight and those 500 customers happened to be not that demographic. They happened to be a demographic that was much more beginner, much more general pop, and, and not at all fitness enthusiasts or, or gym bros, as, as we often classify them. And, and that really opened our eyes that that audience resonated more with this value proposition, more with this product than anyone else we had ever seen. And we would have never even tried that audience for, I mean, years probably if we hadn't just accidentally stumbled upon it. So it's a lot of that combination of like constantly iterating. And then because you're constantly iterating, eventually you get lucky and you stumble into something that, that, that has some amount of product market fit and you can take that and you can run with it. So this idea of building for yourself as a customer Sometimes this is held up as the way to go because you have an insight into your own type of user that exceeds what you could ever understand except through your lived experience. And sometimes people really downplay it as saying, if you're only building for yourself, it's too, too small of a market and you're not going to be addressing broader needs than more people have. Any advice for people in, in choosing that and how they go about picking the ideal customer for their startup? Yeah, that's, that's a great one. And like, I think about it as this problem of like, there's kind of two ways to go about it. You can build, you can build a solution and then you can iterate on the problem slash, you know, the problem and the customer obviously deeply intertwined, or you can pick a problem and a customer and you can iterate on, on the solution. Right. And, and so for, uh, and you can do both of those. Right. But, but typically any given startup will, will, dominantly choose one of those optimization strategies. And so one thing that we did really early on was sort of really hard commit to specific types of solutions where whether that was motion tracking analysis, rep counting type stuff in the very beginning, and then that would evolve obviously later into the concept of a coach that would motivate you and take you to the next level. And so we ended up doing you know, then the, the natural thing to do there was once we had picked this coach concept to then switch to the other side and start iterating on the actual, the, the actual problem we were solving, the customer that we were addressing. And so I, I think we kind of did both where first we iterated on, on the solution <laughs> sort of fixing the customer. And then we iterated on the customer fixing the solution. And eventually we, we sort of spent, spun both of those wheels until we got a match to have some level of product market fit. And so I think I would actually encourage both sides. I think a lot of times the general advice is to iterate on 
the, the sort of solution first, because just throwing a dart out there and saying, we have a solution to a problem is, is, is a pretty bold statement. Obviously, unless if you, like you're saying, have that really, really in-depth knowledge of a specific customer and really understand them end to end, which most people don't, <laughs> even, even if they are one of those customers. So um, yeah, both is my super probably unhelpful, ambiguous answer. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, you do read about in Lean Startup those two fundamental loops of iterating on your go-to-market and iterating on your product. It's similar to what you've described. So I think that's in line with some advice that others have out there. Awesome. <laughs> good to good to hear, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm curious, you know, coming from both founders coming from a technical engineering background, how did you go about learning the marketing side of business? The the short answer is, I mean, as one of my long term long-term mentors always says, uh, the mentor is Dave Mawinney at the Schwartz Center for Entrepreneurship at Carnegie Mellon, awesome guy. And he has always said, like, in order to be an entrepreneur, you need to be a student of the game. And, and what he means by that is no matter what you're doing, you have to constantly be learning the next thing. You have to constantly be evolving. You can never be static or content in like the knowledge base and the expertise that you have. And so, you know, go, going into this business, I always tell you know, your earlier stage entrepreneurs when I talk to them that, you know, despite having an engineering background, uh, I guess to, to talk on the technical side first, like. I, I had never built an app before. I had never built a server before. I had never built a database before. I, I just was, you know, a hardware and operating systems guy. And, you know, in order to even start to build the concepts of what would become our product, I had to learn everything from the ground up about building apps and servers and databases and products. And yes, that was a lot easier because I had an engineering background, but it was still a case of, you know, we could have gone and tried to like, outsource that and hire an app development firm or a contractor, which we actually did try briefly, one of our biggest mistakes, I would say. But eventually we just doubled down and learned it ourselves. And you know, I applied the same philosophy to the, the business side, if you will, where you know I knew that an MBA was was not on the cards for me, at least <laughs> before starting this company, it wasn't. And so I I always was, you know, honestly, just watching YouTube videos, constantly talking to random entrepreneurs that I would meet at Carnegie Mellon, um, you know, constantly reading all, all the books that, you know, probably most entrepreneur founders have read at this point um, to just hear all those perspectives. And I would say, you know, even with all of that, that just gave me like a baseline knowledge of knowing like, okay, what is a CAC? What is a safe? What's a convertible note? What's a price round? You know, like all these basic concepts you just need to understand to be able to navigate this space. Um, but then when it came to the actual like executional experience on the business side, again, I embraced this attitude of like, well, who am I to assume that I, I know the right path, whether it's engineering or business. And so whenever a pivotal moment would come up and obviously Miles, you've experienced this directly, I would always sort of, you know, farm huge amounts of opinions and feedback and just critical thinking, um, you know, volume from the mentors and advisors and investors that surrounded the company. And so I would say like the best move that I made to solve that lack of business experience was in surrounding myself with, with those people. So that way, you know, when some decision came along of should we, I don't know, double down on Facebook ads, do Google ads, do this growth channel, how do we get organic growth, blah, blah, blah. I could take those questions to this forum and I would end up with like 20 different opinions, you know, all varying that would point in different directions. And then it would be my job to synthesize all of that together 
to get you know overall a good strategic direction for the business. And so after doing that, you know, probably a hundred times over the last two years, I've started to slowly, you know, I say like transfer the knowledge of all of these, you know, you know, 30 year old, older than me, 30 years older than me, successful VC entrepreneur founder types into my brain so that I can start, you know, synthesizing and making those ideas on my own a lot faster and more effectively. But, you know, it's an ongoing process. I still do that today just to, to build, to train that muscle, you know, to be uh, corny about it, uh, if you will. So you have coaches for your coaching business, huh? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry for the infinite regress joke. <laughs> I really agree with this concept of learning being central to entrepreneurship. You're learning about your customer, your market, you're learning about um, your product, uh, your suppliers, you're learning about how to do business. You're learning about yourself and your employees and how to be a manager constantly. And it's something that really attracts me to entrepreneurship. I'm curious how you got into entrepreneurship. Oh, that's <laughs> roll back even before this one. You had other ventures, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what word I would use for them. I think I think startup might be a little generous uh, to me. I, I would say project might be more accurate. But so you know, actually, quite a quite an interesting story is so way back in, or I guess way back in high school, I was I was very confident that I wanted to be an engineer from a very very early age, but beyond being an engineer, I had really no aspirations for doing anything, even at all related to management, let alone related to running an entire business. I quite simply just wanted to build robots. That was like from zero to, or not zero, probably from seven to uh, 15, 16 years old. That was like my whole purpose in life was just, I want to build robots. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I credit a lot of that fascination with engineering and building things and automation to, to my dad, who was also an engineer. But then when I was in high school, I just happened to be doing a random project for a chemistry class of all things. And uh, don't get me wrong, I hated chemistry because it wasn't engineering in my mind. And so I said, well, what am I going to do for this chemistry project? Oh, I'm going to do an engineering project instead. <laughs> I'm going to build a robot that automates everything that I hate about chemistry labs. So it's going to do uh, measurements, it's going to do dilutions, it's going to do titrations. And so <laughs> much, much to the sort of uh, annoy, annoyance of my chemistry teacher at the time, I basically bypassed the entire chemistry project by building a robot that would just do chemistry for me for the rest of the year, which was you know, a fun and, and great learning experience on its own. But the pumping system I ended up creating to do this was actually ended up being very cost-effective because, well, I had no budget to build it with. And it also ended up being very accurate because that was one of the main things I was engineering it to do. And so I brought this in and, and one of the other chemistry teachers at my high school came up to me and said like, wait, so you're telling me you can get like whatever it was, you know, seven, seven microliters precision for like 200 bucks. And I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. What about it? And he was like, you could sell that to people. Like people would buy that. Like that's a great value for that level of accuracy. And I was like, huh. And like this light bulb, that moment will stick with me forever because that is quite literally, I think the first time that I had ever really considered selling one of these random projects that I had built. And since that point, I literally like never looked back, like fast forward, even just a month from that moment, I had like incorporated an, an LLC in the state of New Hampshire. I was hiring my friends hourly to like help build more of these devices. I was going around and trying to sell them to 
to other chemistry labs and other schools. And like, I knew obviously absolutely nothing. I, I, I knew nothing about startups in like the sense that we talk about startups from like a venture back standpoint, but even that's when I started down that path of, you know, taking control or taking life by the reins, right? Taking this thing out into the world and just making it happen with sheer power of will. And at the time, you know, I was only a senior in high school. And so continued to foster that energy through my entire time uh, finishing up high school, going through college, et cetera. And so, you know, a few of these projects later, you know, I guess internally, I, I was finally ready to go and build a, a real startup, if you will. <laughs> and do you think that helped you? Oh, yeah, a hundred percent. Like, I mean, I, I remember going into it. I mean, we technically founded what would become Copilot when we were sophomores going into our junior years of college. And so, you know, very, very young, very green, even in the engineering standpoint, not very good engineers yet, right? And so to have that experience of having to do pitch decks and competitions and learning how to communicate these pretty complex technical ideas in a way that anyone could, you know, tune into a podcast and hopefully understand the gist of, of what I'm talking about. Those were all like super valuable fundamental skills. And I remember like, you know, like Gabe, like credit to him for being a, a way better engineer than I am, but he hadn't had that experience. And so there was this, I got to see firsthand of like, I had done all of this groundwork just to be able to, you know, get us those business competition wins, to get us those first angel checks, to get us that initial momentum, to frame the idea, to prioritize things. And, you know, all the while Gabe was doing his side of things, which is building out core technology and, and, and actually making the product work. But that groundwork that I did, if I didn't have that, we would just be sort of, you know, two engineers sitting in the dark with no idea how to even begin to build a business or how to build that network of mentors and advisors to start to get better at building a business, right? And I, and I see that so often, especially in very, very technical founders. I mean, from Carnegie Mellon, where I see it the most, where you'll have, you know, two master's students or two PhD students who really, really are passionate about a technology and idea and want to build it into a company, but you don't have that experience of like, how do I communicate this to people? How do I get people to buy into this? How do I like, how do I become comfortable with throwing everything in the garbage and pivoting this tomorrow to pursue what's actually going to work, right? And those fundamental skills is definitely something I learned in those student projects or whatever you call them early on. So I, I definitely credit a lot of our, our you know, success to date with Copilot uh, to that early experience. And any advice for others who are considering starting a company with their friend? Um, I mean, I'm definitely personally very grateful that, you know, Gabe just happened to be like my best friend at the time. And he happened to be way more passionate than I was about fitness. Um, and he happened to have the technical skill set that, as I said, really rounded out my skill set to be able to go and build that core technology, which was the motion tracking technology at the time. And so, you know, for me, it was, it was really like, you know, the perfect alignment of things. And me and Gabe, I will also say like, we are very fortunate that me and Gabe, probably a reason we're friends is we have very sort of similar, you know, prioritization and decision-making processes where we both take very, very scientific, logical approaches to almost every decision in our life to the point where we're making logical, overly scientific decisions about really stupid stuff <laughs> day to day. But me and Gabe both approach life with that same outlook, which, may, which you know, I'm, I'm very proud to say that in the 
you know, I guess almost three and a half, four years now that me and Gabe have been working on at least this concept together, we've never really had a disagreement that, that involved raising some, someone raising their voice, right? It's always been an extremely logical fact. You know, there's lots of debates, lots of arguing in a, in a sort of controlled manner, but never has there been like that emotional conflict that leads to shit getting really, really messy, um, especially when you're doing it with, with friends or family or things like that, right? So I guess like my advice would be, if you're going into a startup with your friend, don't just do it because you like hanging out with them. Like look for those key sort of like almost relationship level dynamics of like, how's your conflict resolution together, right? Like how is your, how compatible is your general outlook on the world and the sort of missions we'll be forming for this company, right? Um, and if you, and obviously then the more tactical, like how does your actual skill sets merge together, which is it's a much easier one, but you know, don't just go into it because you like hanging out with them, right? Because a lot of times that's just a surface level thing that will break down when there's the conflicts that are, that are inevitable, so. Thank you for being a loyal listener. One thing I'd ask is please consider joining our giving circle. We support startup tech nonprofits with our donor dollars to act as the angels to seed new organizations seeking to scale and do good. So please go to startupsforgood.com and click on giving circle. Any tips on that conflict resolution? I would probably just kind of reemphasize, you know, the approach we've taken, which is, you know, to be very, very, you know, clear going into one of those debates of like, what is the actual thing we're trying to optimize for? Because the second it gets muddy on like what the actual objective of that decision is, like what is the actual variable you're trying to optimize with that action? That's when it can get messy with like getting pulled in a bunch of different directions with like, you know, all these emotional sides to things and, you know, people not wanting to be wrong or wanting to be right or, you know, whatever, wanting to have more control. And so we've always tried to approach things from a, you know, if one person says point A and someone disagrees with it, if you're going to disagree with it, you need to have a really like bulletproof or at least a solid argument to say, no, A is wrong. I think B and then same thing goes for the other person. If they think B is wrong, they better have an actual solid, logical, data-driven argument to come back and say that that's wrong. Like me, me and Gabe, I think just because of our, I guess, personalities sort of shy away from the, I'm right, you're wrong. No, I'm right, you're wrong, right? Like, and, and we tend to want to win for better or for worse, I'll say. We want to win arguments in a, there is no question that I am right type way which leads to lots of data, lots of like very logical evidence-based discourse back and forth, um, which, you know, may drive our girlfriends oh, crazy. At wait, times. You're, you're saying <laughs> but, that you like to win the argument. <laughs> well, yeah, like it's that drive. So we're both insanely competitive, right? So you would think that things would get nasty between us when we're trying to, when we disagree on something, right? But it's like, we both know that we couldn't necessarily feel that sense of like being right or winning or like whatever if if we can't actually prove the answer is logically better or, or data data backed better in a certain way and so rather than just you know sort of yelling back and forth and, and saying this or doing let's do this no let's do this it's you know we we try very hard <laughs> almost too hard in some cases i would argue 
to overanalyze, over-optimize everything using all of the information at our disposal, right? So it's a very like, I don't know, nerdy for lack of better words, way to approach conflicts. Um, but I'm thankful for it because in my opinion, at least it's, it's better to be more analytical and more data-driven and a little more, I guess, like cautious around those decisions than it is to let them devolve into that more like emotional side where, where you're more so arguing just because you want something rather than you actually know that that thing that you want is right, if that, if that makes sense. Define the problem and then go get the data so you guys can come to an answer together. Yeah. And, and a lot of times, like there maybe won't be a clear answer, which normally is, is a point in which we might change the problem, where if, if I feel very strongly about something and Gabe feels very strongly about something, and we kind of are at this stalemate of we both feel like we both have logical arguments as to why our, our you know, path may be the right one forward, a lot of times then, instead of just having that go on forever, we, we try to take a step back and say, okay, well, since we're at this stalemate here, what's another path that we could look at? What's another problem that we could try to optimize around rather than this specific one? And, you know, I, you know, looking from looking back, at least, I feel like we've done a pretty good job of staying, you know, agile and fast and not getting stuck up on one decision because normally an argument of, well, it's only going to take us a week. Here's the hypothesis. Here's the experiment. Let's test this. And then that data will decide who's ultimately right is also a very, you know, logical, uh, easy one to, to throw in there. So, you know, again, like also just experimenting, using the scientific process to resolve conflicts rather than just, you know, mumbling back, back and forth at each other. Now we've been talking about the team dynamics between you and your co-founder. I'm curious what it's been like to build the team so quickly, particularly recently. Yeah, it's, yeah. So, I mean, I guess for context, one year, we were just reflecting on this actually, one year ago today, our team was five employees full-time and today it is 51 full-time. So it's been insane. <laughs> and I'm sure there's, I think there's some VC rule written down somewhere that you're not supposed to more than 5X your team in, in a year or something like that, or else risk, you know, having total internal uh, disarray and collapse. Um, but obviously, you know, Copilot has this unique challenge of our coaches are full-time employees, which is very important to us. So in order to serve more customers, in order to grow at the rate in which we, we are growing, we need to hire a lot of, a lot of coaches as full-time. And so the team needs to grow very, very fast. And, you know, the core team also needs to grow fast, which is, you know, support engineering, product growth, et cetera, to support that increased body of coaches. And so, you know, I always say like we, for a seed soon to be series A stage company, you know, we have a lot of the internal practices, I would argue of a company much, much later in stage where we're already, you know, we have very well-developed, you know, HR type operations. Uh, we have very well developed, you know, policies and uh, expectations for employees and promotion schedules and tiers of different promotions and compensations over time. And like the, the kinds of things, you know, you see in like a Google and their software engineering tiers, but we've already had to implement a lot of that because especially on the coaching side, coaches don't come from a world of startups and volatility and you know, not and having amb ambiguity of whether or not the next payroll will actually go through if that funding round happens, right? Like coaches don't understand that world and they don't necessarily want to be part of that world, and at least until they're educated about it. And so we've had to do 
a lot of this foundation building that normally would happen a lot later, just to make sure that those employees feel feel well supported and heard by the company that they don't want to necessarily work at this crazy volatile startup. They want to have something a little more stable and, and well defined in their in their life to build their career around. And why is it important to have full time coaches? Thank you for asking. It's uh, I mean, this was not something we had in our minds when we first started adding coaches to the product. But as we learned more and more about how coaches were treated traditionally in gyms and studios and by other, you know, sort of marketplace-esque training products, we learned that coaches were typically part-time, hourly, 1099 contractors, no benefits, obviously, no real growth opportunities. There was not really such a thing as excuse me, being you know promoted as a coach, like maybe you could become a lead coach and manage a few people, but that was it. That was the end of the road. And so we saw all of this. And then on the flip side of the coin, we saw coaches who you know had master's degrees and PhDs in some cases, and had literally dedicated their lives and tens of thousands of hours of education and training to help people. And they were being treated like crap by these studios and gyms. And so we, we saw a very unique opportunity for us as a company to offer, to be one of the only companies in the world to offer these coaches a full-time position with, I like to say, you know, the same benefits that a, the software engineer at Google gets, you know, so like full insurance, hundred percent paid by the company, 401ks with matches, you know, a clear path to six figure salaries in their first five year at the com- five years at the company, like, you know, all of these things that a gym could never and would never offer, we can offer. And the reason that it's worth the company's time and money to do that is because, you know, happy coaches, happy clients, right? If, you're, if your coaches are retained by the company, if your coaches are happy to fight for that mission every single day, then the client experience is going to be so much more consistent, so much higher quality, that passion and that sort of, you know, gratitude for the system that we built will show through to the clients. And so, you know, it's very important to not just hand a tool to a coach and say, you know, go have fun and train this person, right? Like Uber can get away with that because the action of driving someone from point A to point B is a very simple action that doesn't need a lot of quality assurance and control. Like obviously, yes, they are adding some of that over time, but it's such a simple action. Any, almost anyone can drive someone from point A to point B. We're dealing with highly skilled professionals here who are doing insanely complex tasks of human motivation, human accountability, programming design, right? And expectation management, goal setting, all these things that take tens of thousands of hours to become masters at. Um, And the only way to control that and have quality from the top down is to, you know, control the actual coaches in the curriculum and the expectations around that. And the only way to do that is to have them as full-time employees that they respect us just like we respect them, right? So it, it's a two-way street of respect and sort of responsibility. And it's just, we, we've never looked back since making a coach full-time. It, it changes, the whole, changes the whole problem. And in order to be able to hire these people, grow the team from five to 50, you know, you've had to raise outside capital. I'm curious what you can say about your fundraising journey. Yeah. So we, I mean, in the early days, as you're familiar, Miles, we raised just over $750,000 in sort of pre-seed angel business competition money. 
And then uh, recently at the beginning of 2021 this year, on the back of some sort of the, the, the first sort of big wave of explosive growth we saw over last holiday season, we raised a $3.3 million seed round. And I can't announce anything official yet, but we are in the process of fundraising again, and I'll have a very exciting update for the world in just a few short weeks. So things are continuing to go well. Company is continuing to, to grow at a, at a terrifying and exciting rate <laughs> uh, and, and very excited for, for that update that I can give soon. Great. Well, we all look forward to that. Any tips for other entrepreneurs on how to have successful fundraisers? Yeah, I mean, my, my experience is, you know, I, th- I think it definitely depends on the, you know, who you are as a founder, your background, and what, you know, sort of vertical or area you're building a business in where, you know, I've, I've seen firsthand in some of my friends who are building deep tech robotics businesses, you know, that are business to business type, you know, things, you know, to go and raise money, you, you don't necessarily from a traction standpoint need much more than a really strong team with a strong conviction on what to build and how you're going to execute and maybe who your first customers might be. Uh, and you can go raise and do amazingly well with that uh, because of the na- the deep tech nature of the business and also just the B2B nature of the business generally causes less sort of hesitation and less sort of risk alarm bells in, in most investors. But, you know, I, <laughs> I maybe you know, not looking widely enough, but I would say that our situation and being, you know, at the time, 23-year-old, first-time founders with only technical experience by, by trade, obviously, by schooling, who were going into one of the most crowded markets there is, fitness, going for a direct-to-consumer play is one of the harder combinations to raise money on that you could probably come up with. And so for us, the answer to that to the skepticism that surrounded our personal combination of things was a, a much larger amount of traction than you would typically need at a given stage. So, you know, I said, you know, we're, we're raising a seed round with series A numbers and we're raising a series A with series B numbers, right? Like that, that's kind of like the, the vibe that we tried to have is that we had done a lot of groundwork on not that much capital to prove that even though, you know, XYZ, crowded market, young founders, first time direct to consumer, right? Even though all those things, we're still executing and we're executing with a relatively small amount of capital compared to some of the competitors who have achieved comparable levels of traction, right? And so, you know, if we didn't have that traction, I have no doubt in my mind, it would be impossible for us to raise. Uh, and so my, my number one piece of advice, especially to, you know, younger first time founders like myself, is to, you know, obviously grind and figure out that initial level of product market fit and that initial level of traction, you know, hopefully approaching a million dollars a year in revenue before you even go attempt to get VC money at all, because it will save you so much time when you're, you know, trying to disprove those skeptics if you just have the data and have the traction right in front of you. And you would be surprised as to what you could achieve with, you know, just those smaller, you know, 50K checks here and there from business competitions or from, you know, awesome angel investors like Miles, right? Before you really need to go big and raise that, you know, two, $5 million round, whatever it is nowadays, right? So yeah, I'd say push yourself to achieve meaningful traction 
before raising. Don't just raise because you feel like, oh, it's probably time for us to raise now, right? Uh, which is, you know, it's very common advice, but it definitely was true for us. Make it, make it true, make it attractive uh, business that's doing well and it'll be easy to raise. Yeah, and I guess another thing that I, I always harp on when, when talking to, to entrepreneurs is you know, the day after that money hits your bank account, nothing changes, right? It is the exact same business with the exact same growth metrics, with the exact same problems to solve, right? And if you're, if you're waiting on the money to hire this specific person, to solve this specific problem, to solve this high level metric, to create growth, like you're probably not going to make it, right? Like that's a lot of things that have to happen in order after you've raised VC money to achieve some level of convincing traction and success. So if you can't make it happen with, you know, two, you know, overworked, overtired people sitting in a garage with a dream, then you're probably not going to be able to make it happen with $3 million, two people sitting in a garage overworked with a dream. I would say there's very, very specific cases where capital is truly the limiting factor to move to the next step. Obviously, if you've already raised capital and you're already growing and you already have large team and large burn, then you need capital to keep the business alive. But again, that's capital to keep the business alive. The actual actions to move that business to the next level and to grow it and to unlock those new inflection points, I would again argue it's not the money that solves that problem. The money is just enabling you time in a lot of cases to solve those problems, right? So, you know, I see a lot of people say, okay, I have an idea. Step zero raise a seed round, then I can go build the thing. It's, you know, that is, that's not going to fly nowadays, especially as a first time founder. It's step zero idea, step one, build the thing. Step two, iterate for, you know, a year <laughs> or more, find some element of product market fit, start generating revenue, then raise your seed round, right? And, you know, you will, once you raise that seed round, the clock starts. Like you're playing a different game at that point where it's all about growth and it's about, you know, performance of metrics of your business and all these much more nitty gritty things than it is about just finding fundamental product market fit. And if you put yourself on that clock before you found product market fit, I would argue you're setting yourselves up uh, for failure. Because you're lighting a fuse. Exactly. Yeah. And that fuse is, you know, 12 to 24 months, depending on how you structure your raise and your team and your burn. It took me and Gabe two years, two plus years to find that concept that would generate some revenue, right? And if we had, if we had somehow raised that $3 million round at the beginning of that, like the amount of progress we made over those next two years, at least in the eyes of a VC would be negligible, right? A VC would ask, well, how much revenue did you have when you raised the seed? And I would say, oh, nothing. We were, we were pre-launch. Oh, well, how much, how much revenue do you have now, two years later? And say, Oh, well, we just, we just got our first you know, little batch of customers. We're doing like $1,000 a month or whatever it was, right? They would be like, okay, that's still nothing. Like you think I'm going to write you a series A check for that, right? <laughs> Versus, you know, if you push that whole timeline two years forwards, right? It's like, okay, you go to the seed investors. Yeah. So we've like, you know, strung this thing along with some angel checks. We have XX million dollars of revenue. Like, you know, how does this look to you? They're like, this sounds great, right? And then still not an easy job, but then going from XX to 10XX revenue for the Series A investors to be impressed is a lot more achievable, right? So it's, yeah, I 100% agree with the fuse metaphor that if you light the fuse before you have any reason to light the fuse, the bomb is just going to blow up in your face before you're even ready to start.
So now we're starting to talk a little bit about downsides or challenges. I mean, up until this point, we've mainly been talking about vision and things going pretty well. I'm curious, what is the most challenging thing you've had to face or the least exciting thing you've had to slog through? Yeah, I would say, I mean, one of the elements for me personally that we already discussed that, you know, obviously I I framed it in a very good light at the time, but, you know, growing the team so fast and maintaining the culture and doing a lot of the HR and policy work that you need to do when you're growing that fast has been a slog, right? Like that is not what, you know, I would argue almost every, you know, founder CEO type person wakes up in the morning saying, man, I'm just so excited to file for state taxes in like 14 different states today and maintain all of that and make sure we're HR compliant and, and fire two coaches that aren't doing their jobs or, you know, whatever it may be, right? Like there's a lot of really hard grinding shit that you have to do um, when you're growing that fast. And so that's definitely just an ugly reality of, of the business nowadays is there's a lot of big business type vibe things going on now. Um, and some of that at like early day, you know, the, the two guys in a garage, you know, overworked, right? Like, you know, that energy is, is definitely, you know, being lost over time, which is inevitable. Uh, and then the second thing, which is a much more like tactical business related thing is, you know, as a direct-to-consumer product that relies mostly on sort of marketing and word of mouth to grow, like just achieving month-over-month growth results becomes an obsession, an unhealthy obsession, right? But an inevitability where it's <laughs> it's a blessing and a curse that when you grow 30% in a month, you get to breathe for about two seconds. And then you then you immediately have to say, okay, that was awesome. We just grew 30%, right? Now, how are we going to grow 20% the next month, right? And so, you know, even with decently reliable acquisition channels, even with continually improving rates of organic growth, it still just carries this weight of, you know, this is the grind that we're going to be on for literally the rest of this business's trajectory, where it's become, you know, just a constant question of, where is the next customer coming from? Where's the next 10,000 customers coming from? Like, you know, how, how do we strategize? How do we hire for that? How do we scale the growth channels, right? And that has become the obsession. And it's, you know, at least from my perspective where I'm operating a lot on this sort of higher level strategic level for the business, it becomes less about, oh, let's, you know, build this specific feature to impact this coach and this client in this specific way. And a lot more about this grind of achieving high level KPIs and metrics, right? And, you know, thankfully we have some awesome like product people and engineers and designers who are now handling that function of how do we build this awesome thing and keep making it better so people love it more and more and it keeps delivering more and more value. But from a founder perspective, a downside is definitely, you know, you become abstracted from that. And then you become, you know, a KPI machine, uh, which is a very different job uh, than being that, you know, sketchy engineer founder in a garage. And as the company grows, you get further and further away from that hands-on work. You're managing someone who's managing someone, et cetera. Yeah. It's definitely, I mean, like, honestly, it's been, I'm not necessarily demoralized by it, but it's again, been one of those opportunities where I mean, I can clearly see like that that's the point where a lot of founders like peace out and like hand off the reins to someone else and say like, I'm just going to be VP of engineering or whatever it is. Right. And, you know, for me, like I, I sat down and asked myself, 
you know, to myself, I was like, okay, so like what, what, I, what actually gives me more satisfaction and more like the sense of like, what does it mean to actually be, you know, successful in life, right? To, to talk philosophically about it. And, you know, for me, I ultimately decided for myself, it's centered around that sense of, of impact, right? And that sense of being in control of the destiny of the company and the destiny of yourself, right? And yes, it would be, you know, fun to do those late night hackathons and to build, to write that code and build those features. And like, that may be what I'm traditionally trained in, but at the end of the day, like, I know from experience that, you know, just being an engineer, not to say bad things about engineers, I'm an engineer, right? But just being an engineer, just being an individual contributor, just being a manager of all of engineering still leaves you that step away from like, this is my mission. This is my, you know, destiny. This is my impact in the world that, you know, I am almost solely responsible for at the highest level to actually bring to reality into this world and to impact thousands of people, right? And being at the helm of that just has a certain, you know, allure to me and also a certain just level of satisfaction and impact that every day I get to not just see the cool product that we engineered and the cool features and the shiny code and the new libraries that are implemented, right? But I get to look across the entire organization and the entire client base that we serve and have a sense of ownership over that and say like, you know, I'm at the steering wheel here, like, you know, no pressure, right? It's all on me. Um, but also like, wow, like, you know, me and Gabe at the helm of this have, have created this and built it to this point, like, let's keep going. This is awesome. And that sense of, of accomplishment and that sense of satisfaction and impacts in the world far outweighs the sort of grindy nature of, oh, well, now we have to be really focused on KPIs and growth and growth. It's like, well, yeah, like that's just part of being at the helm now. And as you said, like, you know, fast forward 10 years from now, if we IPO, like that's going to be a completely different job. Right. Um, but I think being, having that job, no matter what the actual job description is, is something that's just innately extremely satisfying for me. And I don't, I don't think I could see myself doing anything other than that job, whatever it may be, uh, at, and, and, and being sort of satisfied in the long term uh, with, with that position. Inspirational, a look ahead to how big Copilot will be and how your job will grow and learning to love being at the helm of the company, not just the product. Thank you yep. so much for being on. It's been wonderful having you. Where can people follow you or the company online? I would say the best place to connect with me uh, is probably just on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me with, with a simple search. Uh, for, for Copilot, I mean, we're active across several platforms. I would say probably the best way to be in, in close contact with what we're doing is to you know, sign up for our mailing list, which is just as simple as creating, creating a free Copilot account on our website, which is mycopilot.com. Uh, and I'll also do the obligatory sales pitch that we're currently doing a no credit card required free trial. So for 14 days, um, you can have completely no commitment access to your own personal trainer and do that onboarding call, get that first two weeks of workouts, give it a try. Yeah, not even a credit card required. So really no barrier to entry is the goal here. And I'd love for uh, any listeners today to give that a try and see if we can impact your own fitness journey. Cool. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Miles. It was a pleasure as always. Thank you so much. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. Reviews really do help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and you can follow me on LinkedIn. 
If you are inspired today and want to join our giving circle, please do so on our website, startupsforgood.com. Thank you.